Welcome to this podcast from the Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. This podcast is the first of a three-part series on the topic of setting up a basic science research laboratory. The target audience of this podcast are junior investigators, both MD and PhD, who are looking to start or have just started their own research lab. In the first part of this series, we introduce our discussants, Dr. Megan Ballinger, a PhD assistant professor from Ohio State University, and Dr. Rachel Siemens, an MD associate professor at the University of Michigan. This first part also discusses parameters and benchmarks to start a new lab or move your existing lab to a new institution. Megan, can you briefly describe your training background before setting up a lab? So thanks so much for that question. I think one thing that's really important to note is that MD and PhD careers are a little bit different. So I'll tell you a little bit about my career path. So I got a PhD in um, immunology at the University of Michigan. And from there, I actually did two different postdoctoral research fellowships there. Um, I was interested in different diseases and there was different models. And so it kind of worked out to be able to have a big experience and have lots of different mentors. in that role. And so after I finished um, my two postdocs, it was time for me to go on and get a faculty position. And it just happened that my husband found a job at The Ohio State University, and they had a large pulmonary division. And so I was able to make the transition via kind of coordination with mentors and, and knowing people of ATS and being able to email them and say, hey, is there a position for me to be able to actually go there? And so I moved down to Ohio State, but I, and I was given the faculty position, but I was originally hired as a research assistant professor. And so um, I know many different institutions have many different tracks. And so at Ohio State, we have a clinical track, a research track, and a tenure track. And so I was hired in as a faculty, and I, but I was hired on a research track, which meant I didn't really have a startup. I didn't have a lab. I just kind of had a bench in a large, a larger lab, and I had a mentor that was really kind of helping me to oversee my research and, and helping to direct that. After I was in that lab for three years, I had secured enough small independent grants and had been co-eyes on enough grants that I approached my institution and asked what I needed, what else I needed to do to be promoted to a tenure track, because that was really what my ultimate goal was. And so I was appointed to a tenure track position. And when I was appointed to a tenure track position, I was given a small startup. So it wasn't a large package over multiple years. It was a one-time sum, and it was um, one uh, um, a small amount of money. But what I was able to do in addition to getting a little bit of money was I actually inherited a lot of equipment. We had some transition with people that were leaving the institution or kind of moving on from research careers. And so even though I didn't get a lot of money, the idea that I had my own space and I was able to kind of inherit all of these centrifuges and freezers and um, all of that kind of stuff really uh, gave me a great start to um, starting my own research lab. As far as um, some of the background and some of the training that I had, I have to say I didn't have a lot. A lot of it was just um, me watching how different labs that I worked at, both at my institution that I received my PhD as well as my current institution were run and the different um, organizational techniques techniques that people used. And so I also attended a couple workshops. Um, Here we have a a faculty program that kind of helps to train and mentor early career faculty. And so they had a couple outside speakers come in. And so I, I attended those. But that was pretty much 
call that I had as far as how to be trained in setting up a research lab. Great. Thanks for that. So you, you highlighted importantly right off the bat that there's uh, differences between uh, PhDs and MDs uh, as far as their training background and important considerations before they set up a lab. So Rachel, you're obviously an MD, and can you, can you give us briefly your training background before setting up a lab and play off Megan's answer and maybe highlight some of the important uh, differences uh, pertinent to the MD career for setting up a lab? Yeah, so um, like you said, I had an MD, so I took a little bit of a different route. I had, um, I think one big difference is um, the amount of time that you need to really get up and running um, in your science. And so I had dabbled a little bit in the lab, like as an undergraduate, medical school, residency, but really I didn't start in the lab, I didn't have a PhD, so I didn't really start doing lab work until after my clinical fellowship. And then that's only a couple years of research fellowship. So you really need to do the equivalent of what Megan described, you know, two, you know, graduate school and two postdocs before you're sort of scientifically mature enough to open your lab. And for MDs, of course, the route is to get a K, and that's five years, a five-year mentored grant um, in which you can develop scientifically. And then... I got my R01, and I moved um, as an associate professor with my first R01. Thanks, Rachel. That was great. Um, so to kind of segue on to the next uh, question, um, I was wondering what both of you think about the benchmarks um, that need to be achieved prior to setting up the, your own lab. Um, Megan, do you want to start with that? Yeah, I think that's a great question, David. And to be honest with you, I had to kind of really think through that a little bit. Um, I think one of the big things that kind of surprised me a little bit was was just the amount of money it takes to do to run a lab. And so I think really making sure that you are in a place that you either have grant funding or you have a startup package or you have collaborations that are going to be supplying some of those really key pieces of equipment and reagents in place, you have to set yourself up to be able to succeed. And so I think being really cognizant of how much money it takes to actually start a lab and run a lab and keep things going is something that's really important in being able to kind of branch off. And as I said in my um, training background, I didn't get a large setup, but I was able to inherit all of these different pieces of equipment. And that was something that was really key to me being able to be independent and to be able to kind of run my own research program. Thanks. That's great, Megan. Um, Rachel, you mentioned um, uh, during uh, your initial answer that uh, a K award was important for uh, the MD pathway. Are there anything else that might help on that route? So, yeah, there are the um, practical issues that Megan mentioned, but um, maybe it's more important from the MD side is um, are you ready intellectually? Because, as I mentioned, um, you're, you really don't start your research career um, until you've already finished your med school, residency, and then clinical fellowship. So, for me, it was... Um, developing scientifically to the point that I was actually sort of mature enough to run a lab and supervise and mentor others. So I think the time to set up your own lab is when you have a bunch of um, good research questions that you're dying to answer and you're excited to answer. You know how to design the experiments to answer those questions, and you just need more hands in the lab to do those experiments. Great. That's a really good insight. 
Um, so I'll, I'll direct the next uh, question first to you, Rachel. So uh, I know you recently moved institutions to, and set up a new lab. So I was wondering if you could comment on some of the key parameters to look for in an institution when choosing to move. So of course there are the tangible things, um, resources to pay salaries and the operating costs um, and also protected time to do the research. But when I was making the decision about moving, I think the most important factor was the intellectual environment. That's really the key. Are you going to be somewhere where you're stimulated by your peers, where people are doing um, a wide variety of types of science, um, and people that are really going to stimulate you to take your science to the next level and are going to be willing collaborators? Thanks. That's helpful. Megan, do you have anything to add to that? I think one thing to consider, I I was very conflicted with moving. It was more of a move for me for family reasons. And so for me, um, it was hard to move, and I, I, I wasn't sure if it was the right place. But what I found is in if people are hesitant to moving, what I found is that not only do I still have the connections and the amazing um, networks that I was able to develop during my graduate school and my postdoctoral world, I've also been exposed to this whole new world of new collaborators and new ideas and new ways of looking at problems. And so I really found it to be a very additive experience and that it didn't really detract on everything that I had already done and I'd already accomplished and those networks and collaborations that I had set up. Instead, it really kind of opened up a whole new world to me. And so that was something that I didn't really anticipate and um, was something that was really exciting to me to embrace some of these new things that I hadn't been exposed to or I hadn't thought about. And some of the new ideas and the collaborations was really exciting and a fun kind of perk in the midst of trying to figure out where the autoclave is and trying to navigate how to put in your mouth protocols. It was, it was nice to have some other um, really exciting new people around that um, were excited about my work and wanted to collaborate and wanted to kind of build up new things together. So just to follow up on that, I really agree with Megan that it's great to go to a new environment and you meet all these different people doing all kinds of different work and set up all these new collaborations that you couldn't have predicted. And then the other great thing that she sort of touched on was you don't lose your old relationships and collaborations and mentors. So every time you move, and I would not recommend moving frequently, but every time you move, um, it's what Megan said, it's just additive and you just have a wider network of collaborators and mentors and friends. Great advice. Thanks, guys. Um, so the next question um, uh, I was hoping to discuss with you guys is about something that's uh, somewhat a, of a great unknown, um, and that's the startup package. Um, and so, ha have you any thoughts about you know what should be incorporated in them and, and how to go about this whole new process? I think that you really have to be cognizant of all of the small things that you kind of take for granted and just um, understanding what it takes to run a lab. And I feel like I've kind of learned this by just trial and error. And so um, I think it's a good thing to talk about and it's a good thing to discuss. And so one of the things that you definitely need to have is large pieces of equipment. You need freezers. You need 
centrifuges. You need any kind of specific um, molecular or cellular biology equipment that you need to do Western blots or run gels or any of that stuff. But you have lots of other small things. I didn't realize it until we were trying to do an experiment one day, and I'm like, why do we only have one vortex? We need like three of these. And so, I mean, really being, I would say, walking around the lab that you're currently in and looking at the setup of what you have, and, and if you only have one vortex and everybody in the lab shares it, then that's probably what you're used to. But I was used to having my own, and I liked that idea. And then paying attention to pipettes and what brand you like. Because I have to say, I just always, every time I was in a new lab, I was given a set of pipettes, and I just used them. But you kind of develop which ones you like, which ones you don't like. And so now you have an opportunity to buy the kind of pipettes you want. And so really paying attention to what you like, what you don't like, and saying that that's okay to have preferences, to like certain pipettes or to like certain um, tissue culture plates or slides or feel like you have a very reputable company. And so sometimes it's really nice to think about all of that stuff and, and kind of put that together as you're looking at startup packages. Another thing um, that I would just recommend doing when you're talking about packages is not just talking about what needs to be included, but talking about the package itself. And so um, understanding that the institution is not going to probably give you all that money up front because it's a large sum and they're always kind of moving money around. So understanding, do you get a certain amount every month? Do you get it once that initial amount is depleted? And I just say this because of my own personal experiences. I was given one sum, but unfortunately we had a lot of turnover in our department, and our division, and I had three fiscal officers over a two-year period. And because I wasn't given a certain amount every month, nobody could track how much money I had, how much money they'd given me, how much money is left. And so I think these are some of the things that I never thought about asking, but I think they're very important in understanding um, what you're getting and when you're getting it and how all of that workflow is going to do. The other thing that I would say as you're looking at all of the equipment and all of the kind of disposable things that you need and, and the big item things, and you're looking at your um, amount that you're getting, um, I've had other people who have said that people have promised them large pieces of equipment and what the institution will do is buy it from your startup fund so that when you start, you're already deficient by a certain amount because they promised you that much that amount of money and they promised you that piece of equipment, but they didn't promise that they would be separated. And so I think just really being very, very careful about how you're reading the um, final letter that you're getting and making sure that all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that what you think you're getting is actually what you're going to get. And so just, just to be very wary of how to negotiate, make sure you have everything you needed there and make sure it's very clearly spelled out exactly what you're going to be getting. Uh, thanks, Megan. Uh, Rachel, any thoughts on that question? Yeah, I agree with Megan completely. I was also advised to um, walk around my current lab space and make a list of absolute everything that I see that I think I'll need, you know, down to the last pipette tip because the little things add up. And then I was able to price that out, um, and that is what led me to um, 
you know, the, the sum total. And it worked out really well for me. My technician that I had in Denver did a wonderful job of getting quotes for me on everything, um, which enabled me to formulate my idea of what a startup should look like, but also allowed us to hit the ground running um, in terms of placing orders for equipment. Another piece of advice I got um, actually from my new division chief, who was very generous, and he told me, you know, think about not just what you need now to open up um, a lab and do the science you're doing now, but think about what you need for where you're going to want to be in five years and incorporate that growth into um, what the startup package should look like. Um, so I thought that was good advice. And then for MDs, probably for everybody, um, but for MDs, protected time is key to put into that initial contract um, because it will take more time than you can even imagine to set up a new lab from scratch. So a nice thing I had in terms of protected time was that I had a few less weeks of service, inpatient service, for the first year or two um, that I was on faculty at the new institution. And that just gives you a little bit extra time to get people trained and get the lab up and running. Thanks, Rachel. This is Megan. Just to kind of put a little bit of a PhD perspective on that, it's also really important so that you know um, for your metrics in a PhD. I'm a PhD in a clinical division, and so understanding what I need to kind of keep myself running, and then also understanding how the building or the institute that you are currently in understands space and how they kind of um, – what you need to do to be able to fulfill your space requirement to kind of not necessarily pay your rent, but to be able to justify the office and the space and the stuff that you've been allotted. And so making sure that those are questions that you ask and that you give yourself enough money and enough time during that initial startup and ramp-up phase to have those items covered so you don't have to worry about grant support or you don't have to worry about other things covering that, just so you know what the metrics are that you're going to be judged against during your um, kind of initial startup period, but then also as you start to get things going and you're a little bit more established. I think that's really important um, to understand what you're going to be held responsible for. Great. That's very helpful. So just as a quick follow-up to that, Megan mentioned being very explicit about where uh, equipment came from as far as uh, money, whether it came directly from startup or whether it was a separate purchase. And that got me thinking of a, a somewhat loosely related question about whether it's also equally important from an MD perspective to have that careful, explicit attention to detail about what your clinical requirements are and uh, how that factors into your overall protected time. So, Rachel, I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, I agree completely. Just like Megan was saying about the details of the startup and how is this equipment going to get paid for and how is your space going to get paid for, the same applies to the details of your clinical obligations. Um, I think the challenging thing is you may not know what questions to ask because the culture and clinical services at different um, institutions are a little bit different. But the more explicit you can have it spelled out, the same as what Megan was saying for um, lab finances, the more explicit you can have spelled out what your clinical requirements are going to be, the better it is. Um, and so... I had mine spelled out not just in percent effort, which I find to be sort of abstract, but in explicitly 
how many weeks of um, inpatient service, how many days a week of clinic, that sort of thing. And then you can ask, um, you know, during the negotiations, well, what about this? Are there going to be any call nights expected on top of this? Are there going to be any um, procedure days, like bronchoscopy days, on top of it? Um, and just the more explicit you can be, the better. And um, even to how will your clinical um, expectations change as your salary support from your grants wax and wane? And they probably aren't going to be able to predict into the future exactly what that would look like, but I think having that conversation up front is helpful. Dr. Ballinger, Dr. Siemens, thank you for your insight thus far. This concludes part one of this podcast. Listen to part two of this podcast series for personnel hiring, setting expectations, and time management.